You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back with us this week is Mr. Joe Yannick. How you doing? This week we are looking at Andrzej Zulowski's sci-fi epic On the Silver Globe. Initially begun in 1977 and not released until 1988, the film is based on a series called The Lunar Trilogy by Zulowski's great-uncle Jersey. The film is roughly split into three parts and tells the tale of Jersey, whose name in the subtitles I saw was George, the second about Merrick, or Mark as the subs had him, and the third about Jack. And I just don't believe that the guy's name is Jack whatsoever. I'm not going to say a lot more about the plot right now because I'm not even sure I can say a lot more about the plot. I can't say that we're going to get into spoilers because I don't know if we can necessarily spoil this movie for you it's one of those so i will be honest i feel utterly underprepared to talk about this film but i'm uh, hoping that we can help people maybe get some understanding of this film rather than uh, ruin it for them so that said heather when was the first time you saw on the silver globe and what did you think the first time I saw on the Silver Globe was about last February. I got really, really lucky, and um, my good friend uh, Bill Ackerman, as well as my uh, my my host family, as I'm calling them, Keith and Christina Crocker, basically enabled it for me to go to New York and go to the Lincoln Center the weekend they were showing. Uh, they debuted Zulowski's Cosmos, but they showed other Zulowski films, including uh, The Devil and On the Silver Globe. 
so that's how I got to see on the Silver Globe. And it was seeing it in a theater, especially seeing it because this was a print that was cleaned up and properly translated with great help from Daniel Bird, who you're going to interview later for this episode, which is awesome. It sounds cheesy to say it was like a spiritual experience almost. I don't even know how else to describe it. Like the last film I, I'd seen that made me feel just all of just that just hit me like this one did was Hodorowski's Holy Mountain. And anybody who's seen the Holy Mountain, you're probably going to be like, holy shit, like what? <laughs> like this is a journey. <laughs> and on the Silver Globe is definitely a journey. I, I loved it. It's it's dense and beautiful. I have the same answer. Uh, actually, this is one that I've been circling around for years. But um, as most people can attest, the the versions that had been sort of on the internet and available in bootlegs or whatever, whatever version were always pretty subpar. And I'd seen pieces of it, but I could tell that there was something going on that I just didn't want to experience that way. So I kind of held off. And then I'd heard about the restoration through Daniel. And then lo and behold, uh, I the retrospective that uh, Heather just mentioned started the day I got back from Berlin. So I went into and I think I, I missed Cosmos, but then I saw all of them. And on the Silver Globe was just it was everything I wanted it to be. It was like every, it was like as bit of like sort of like Heather said a journey. And you know it didn't help. It was I think three days after Zhilovsky uh, died, and just the gut punch of the final shot of the film. I think the whole audience was dead silent and throughout the credits and everything and even after when everyone's getting up there's just sort of this morose look on everyone's face because first off i think most people had experienced one of the finest pieces of like cinematic art they've ever seen and then on top of that just to have sort of this like book end of his career and him dying but also like him actually being able to complete what i think is the most impressive film in his uh in his career Heather, is Joe lying, or was that really how it was? He nailed it, especially because the film they showed right before in the Silver Globe was The Devil, which The Devil is also brilliant and intense. It's a, it's a very different animal a little ways than on the Silver Globe. But, I mean, there are people – I mean, the audience wasn't quite as quiet for The Devil. You know, I know at one point there was, like, some male nudity, and there was some guy behind me that snickered. It was like, really, dude? You're going to snicker about a penis watching a Zulowski movie? Like, we're not at, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 here or anything. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but no, on the Silver Globe, it was completely dead silent. And yeah, by the, you know, when the film, the last reel, and just that, those last moments, it, it was like a, like a kind of a heart punch. You know, it was, uh, it was, it was heavy, but in a, in, in the best ways that great art and great artists can be. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see this on the big screen, so hopefully you guys can kind of help guide me through this a little bit. I've only seen the DVD release that came out however many years ago. I remember reading about this film when it was hitting like the gray market sites, you know, shocking videos, these kind of places, and somebody described it as this is like a Polish version of Dune. Now, I have to say that's probably the worst description that you can give for this film. Dune is such a different film for me. I understand that people were confused by Dune. I still don't understand why people were confused by Dune, but some people were confused by that film. This is a whole other level of, I won't say confusion, but it's a whole other level of storytelling. Now, Lynch is Lynch. I love Lynch. Everybody should know how much I love David Lynch. We talked about Dune, I think it was all the way back in like episode four absolutely love that film this is a whole different breed we're not even in the same you know kingdom or phylum over here when we're talking about this movie this is 
Wow. So intense. So this, I have only seen this on that version with these subtitles that really leave a lot to be desired and with visuals that leave a whole lot to be desired. There's a section in the film that takes place in a cave system. Uh, Yeah, I could barely see anything that was going on. Even when I'm turning up the brightness as much as I possibly can, I can just barely make out stuff that is happening. There's this whole conversation that one of the characters is having with this creature. I can't see the creature. Thank God the creature was kind of lighting up at times, so I can kind of tell there's something else in the room with him. Otherwise, I was just completely lost. So, like I said, hopefully you guys can uh, help guide me through this. Is that enough pressure I can put on you? Plenty, yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not enough. So if you could put like just a little bit more pressure on me, I'd really appreciate well, that. Well, why don't you tell me the story of the movie? My God. I mean, the, the, the film begins with a framing story. And if you're not really aware that it's a, it's a framing story, then you're just completely confused within their first five minutes and this you know the framing story the thing that i like about this movie is is this i don't want to say like it's not cinema pavera they use already pre-existing sets very well like it starts off with a man on a horse a scotsman on a horse for mrs emma hamilton and nelson a scotsman on a horse always a great way to start a film and he ends up at this chateau and there are all these strange, strangely dressed people inside the chateau, including these two guys who are dressed as astronauts. And the guy who we've seen on the horse doesn't really speak very much. It's almost like a like a cowboy and Indian type thing where the Indian scout comes back and is talking to one of the cowboys. And I'm just like, OK, I, I kind of know what's going on here. And then we cut from that to this voiceover with all of this, at the time, 1980s, modern-day footage, and that starts to tell us a little bit more of the story. So what is happening is that the film wasn't necessarily complete. Now, we're going to hear from Daniel Bird. He's going to tell us the whole story. of, But the film wasn't complete, so there are these sections within the film where everything kind of, I don't want to say it stops, but it changes direction, and we get these shots of modern day Poland at the time and a voiceover that tells us what's happening kind of fills in the gap. Sometimes they're cleanly interspersed between these, you know, these major chunks of the story. Sometimes there'll just be a couple, a few sentences here and there, but we really get the whole story set up from him telling us this. And then we go into the next part, which is to me the most challenging part of the film if I didn't know what was necessarily going on, I mean, this I'm being jerked back and forth really quickly, just with the way that the film is being set up within the first, what, five minutes of it. And that might be um, the difference in the subtitles and stuff too. Cause it's, it's pretty clear. I think, you know, in the final restoration that, that um, something has fallen from the sky and it's actually, um, it's a videotape uh, and it's like a diary and we're going into that. So uh, I mean, and obviously those other footage, the footage of, the, of modern day Poland is, is different, but I mean, I guess we should talk more about how the footage, the extra footage added in the eighties, like at the end of it. I don't, I don't know if it's good to talk about it now as far as our take on it, but yeah, I mean, I think going in the film, you're immediately, um, and it's something I think Zalowski does so well is you're immediately disarmed and you never find your footing. Uh, I mean, I think you would have to be a savant to be able to understand every um, 
cue and every like uh like analogy in the film but i th- i think there's enough to go off of but it's really it's just an entirely disarming film i don't think it's one you're supposed i feel like you're supposed to be um sort of not 100% sure what's going on and it's sort of that feeling of dis uh disconnection that makes the film work so well for me at least i'm so glad that you brought up that first section mike i wouldn't say i'd almost forgotten it but the thing is like by the time you get to the midsection you're kind of at least for me i was kind of like fully immersed in the film but if you know but at first yeah you are trying to kind of be like huh what's what what trip are we in for here i do think it's interesting and i mean if you guys could think of another example please let me know but um i didn't even think about this at the time you know having parts of the film be like this videotape that's been documented uh by one of the astronauts that have landed on this unnamed planet. And I know in the original book, it was the moon, but for the film, it's just a planet, you know, it's another planet. So you have kind of like a little bit of found footage. Yeah, this predates Cannibal Holocaust by a few years. So on the Silver Globe, maybe was this really the first one that implemented found footage? I don't know enough about found footage. I know this question has been asked a lot, so it's probably easy. I mean, Mike, do you know the first found footage film? No, I I really don't. I mean, I've it's one of those things that I'm always interested in as far as recovering a document that has been shot, allegedly shot from somebody else and then inserted into the movie that you're watching. I really can't think of what the first one that is, but this is uh it, it was kind of disarming to see this and be like, "Oh wow, this is uh the, the, he's really doing this and he's doing it as well as, if not better than people in our modern era are doing it. And he's doing this in 1977, this whole idea of them speaking to the camera, all of the jump cuts. Like, at first, I was really kind of thrown off. I didn't know what the jump cuts were about. I didn't necessarily even know why they were speaking to the camera. And then finally, I realized, oh, this guy has a monitor on him or a camera on him, and he is recording all this. And it was just kind of like the... I don't know if it's the highlights or what you want to call it, but just the way that they capture this footage and the way that uh, Zulowski has had it edited really just draws you in and puts you off at the same time. I can't imagine like going to this film and not knowing like if you if you were just like well this will be kind of like an arty science fiction film because you know this film like for me kind of it felt like I mean it is technically science fiction but I feel like it kind of breaks a lot of boundaries. And it's just sort of like its own thing. You know, it's one it's one of those films where you just, you know, on the silver globe is its own category. It's the on the silver globe genre. <laughs> it's funny that Dune was brought up because I, I guess I could see what someone might be trying to say. I think in terms of world building, Dune is a good example because Dune has such an, a complex world building process, which this film shares. But the only film I think there's only one film I've ever seen that felt close to this film and that's hard to be a god i was completely thinking of hard to be a god while i was watching this especially the whole idea of the cameras on the people and the documenting and then even more so in the uh fleischman version of hard to be a god where you can kind of see back into the control room and get a little bit more of that because we have those shots later on in the film where we've got the people who are watching the footage, interacting with the footage, because it's not just one astronaut that we're following. We have this initial uh, section of the film where we're following, um, I, I don't want to call him George, where we're following Jersey, and we see pretty much his entire, the rest of his life from when he lands or crashes on this planet, this very Earth-like planet, 
until pretty much when he dies. And we get this whole rest of his life being documented and all the things that are happening to him on this planet, the way that hey, uh, there are other uh, survivors, or at least their son has grown up, and just to uh, see how he interacts with him, and just the way that uh, we get everything encapsulated through this almost a video diary, and he does treat it like almost a real-world type, you know, B-roll video diary at times, like when he's out in the desert and looking into the camera and giving this confession on, you know, just like all of the reality shows that we have today, it's the confessional. Like I said, it threw me off at first until I kind of realized what was happening, and then, yeah, it just is this whole story that takes place within the film, and it's really just amazing. The character that I, I thought was the, you know, for me one of the most striking was was Marta, who's one of the astronauts that's landed, and basically this tiny group of astronauts sort of stranded create a new civilization, and Marta is the mother of the civilization, and you see them kind of grow rather fast, like it's like they hardly age, like the astronauts. But they build upon the civilization with all of these children that are basically all kind of slightly inbred because there's, you know, only like a finite number of adults here. That's what I was wondering, if these were all the children of the astronauts or if they found this other band. That's one of those areas of disconnect for me where I was just like, are these all their kids or are these people that were already living on the planet? I think they're all their kids. I just think that one of the first um, digressions from reality that you have to take to accept the film is that some reason on this planet there is a, and I'm sure the novel goes into this more, um, which I do hear is being translated. So, you know, luck, like we might be able to read it in the next couple of years. I just took it as there's some sort of the difference in reality and, and, and the children born on this planet develop at a rapid rate. I know she says how big, what is it? Thomas Jr. is getting, and you can see from almost one scene to the next that he's a toddler, then he's an infant, and then he's you know he's a young man. And so I'm like, okay, it kind of reminded me of the Genesis planet from uh, Star Trek Three. <laughs> so so young Spock, he's growing up very quickly, but not necessarily the rest of it. The the progenitors are are aging at their normal rate, whereas their kids are growing up, and then eventually we have this whole like mini society that grows out of them i mean it's kind of lord of the flies as well because they really adopt this tribalism very quickly the way that they go from these astronauts who would think kind of have our values and everything for earthbound next thing we know we have the children are are painted their faces have these kind of tribal uh drawings on them they're wearing these uh, very elaborate headdresses and and outfit jersey is the only one who really kind of survives of that and they just call him the old man they treat him like he's this figurehead of their religion but they don't necessarily give him all the respect that you would think that that title deserves. That was actually something that kind of surprised me while watching the film, because typically, you know, in a society, you know, you would think in a tribal society that maybe, you know, the, the elders are the ones that are most revered as the wise ones, the passers, the ones that pass on the knowledge and history and all of that. And, and now, I mean, Jersey or I think he's also called Peter in some like in some translations, it's kind of like, nah, they're kind of, some of them are kind of shitty to him. Like he was, you know, 
like it's 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 very fascinating just just the way you know the interaction but also just almost like this sort of like this made up because it's like they don't quite look native american but there's definitely like a pagan tribal look to it that's you know which we gotta we gotta mention the design how amazing the costume design is in this film you know julowski definitely had like some of the best people on his crew for this film to go, I guess, go back to a point that Heather brought up, and both Mike as well as that they kind of treat him bad. There's a, there's the explicit line of dialogue where they even say um, they treat him sort of like a like he's kind of like a demigod. He's like, but there's a line where they say that they're that he that he reminds them like his presence sort of undermines their religion, and basically they've sort of mythologized this trek to trek to this planet from the from earth and they've created a religion around it but the presence of him in the society uh, undermines the mythology because you can't really have a mythology while the person's present um it sort of requires exile or death to create the figures out of them so i think that in a way he's like this presence that both uh supports and then also deconstructs their created uh religion Throughout this whole film, there's definitely some commentary uh, about both religion and governments. But also, I mean, for me, the whole film is, you know, is sort of almost a statement of like the the problem with with being a colonist and just almost sort of like, you know, how utopia is kind of it's an impossible thing because I don't know us as humans, even though we're I know we're about to talk about some of the supernatural creatures that are you know, that come into the play in the film, but you know, there's just always, there's something within us that sort of dark, that darker side, that id, that wants power and that craves sometimes, but also craves structure where sometimes there isn't structure, like maybe, you know, matters with spirituality and how so much of this can just muck everything up. You know, I mean, we see it every day in real life. So why not see it in art? It's much easier to think that there's somebody pulling the sun across the sky in a chariot rather than figuring out that the earth is rotating and then rotating around the sun as well. And then the whole, you know, the the, the actual movements of the planets. I mean, that stuff's difficult. It's much easier to just say, oh, yeah, there's a God who takes care of this. There's a God who takes care of that. You know, there's one who if I pray to the east wind, then this will happen because it happened once before. Absolutely. You know, or, you know, we're descended from clams. Are you talking about my thetan levels? Maybe. <laughs> I haven't used my e-meter yet today. Oh, I know. I've been so rusty. We'll have to, we need to dust off our e-meters, Mike. Well, there's definitely some good Catholicism and Christianity happening in this film. I mean, obviously, before we jump to the end of this film, you can't have what happens at the end of this film happen without there being Christian overtones to it. But I even before that, I mean, even in that first scene that I was talking about where you have this, you know, this tribe who we don't necessarily know who they are at this point and these astronauts and the way that the astronauts give these uh, chemicals, they are described at least in the uh, subtitles I had, you know, giving them these chemicals, which are basically drugs and the natives love these things. And at one point, one of the astronauts is like, they could easily rise up and kill us in our sleep if they wanted and take all the chemicals they want. 
And the other one's just like, well, you know, sometimes it's better for us to give that to them. And I'm just like, wow, this really seems like a, a communal thing, like th- like giving the Eucharist. I was just like, yeah, okay, because we can get the Eucharist. We could break into the church and take all the Eucharist that we want, but that doesn't have the ceremony, that doesn't have the pomp, that doesn't have the priests who are handing this out. Yeah, and it seems to contrast later on the Shern's, uh, the Shern, the the conflict between, I guess. I don't know what, you, what we would call them, um, the the settlers of, like, we can call as a shorthand, like, the people who have come to Earth and recolonized, like, the settlers and the Shurns versus sort of the people of Earth and uh, these, like, native populations. Yeah, let's talk about those Shurns, because at one point when we're in that story of Merrick, they talk about how uh, they, being the, the children, the colonists, they say, we're going to go across the lake and we're going to, you know, see what's over there. And next thing we know, there's one guy coming back and he's talking about how horrible the creatures are that are over there, that they can fly and that everyone has been massacred. And that's pretty much kind of how we end off the Jersey sequence is that they keep waiting to hear the wings of these things, uh, you know, descend upon them. And he pretty much knows that he's going to die and he ends up sending off his memoir his his video uh diary and now just to make sure that i'm on the same page with you guys is that the video diary that we have seen the tribal people bring to the two astronauts is that the same document i think it definitely is that was my understanding too so it's pretty much the opening of this has them finding this document watching it and that kind of brings us into the story. Because, again, there's that gap in between there of what we have shot in 77, then what we have shot in 88 or 87, and then back to 77. And so I'm guessing that in that slice in between there is kind of when we would see them start to play this and take us into the story that way. Is that kind of your guys' understanding as well? Yeah, my understanding was that basically once the astronauts leave the Earth, the communication between the, the astronauts who left and Earth was was um, was cut, and that this tape was actually was the first kind of contact from the the new civilization to the old civilization. So that's what brings Marek to the the planet is they send him after finding that uh, after finding this, and I mean, and then Mark has his own reasons for leaving. Do you take it similarly that we set the film set, starts in like. Uh, contemporary time of Marek, and then we go into basically a long preceded flashback, and then it goes back to time one. Absolutely. I have to say, like, I loved, like, the, the look of this film, though. It, it definitely helps to get to see a cleaned-up print of it. Like, Mike, I feel like whenever this hopefully inevitably comes out on Blu-ray, I want to buy you a copy <laughs> and send it to you so you can see it, because um, I am not one of those snobs that's like, oh, I'll only watch something if it's, like, the best print of it. I mean, there's plenty of films I love where my only copy is a bootleg, because it's just stuff that's never been released or super out of print. But, like, this is a film where you do kind of it does make such a difference. It makes a huge difference to see it cleaned up and properly translated. But just the visuals of just like everything looks so bleak and Merrick's, you know, on Earth and Merrick's time. And, you know, which I thought was kind of a cool contrast to me to like the planet, which looks both almost equally bleak, but also beautiful. Like there's a weird kind of, I don't know, like a just it's it's like this great contrast and combination and a lot of that's just the excellent cinematography 
I just, I, it's this film. I mean, there's nothing else that looks like it as in addition to nothing else being quite edited, it, you know, edited, edited like it <laughs> or presented that visually it, it's, it's something else. Yeah. I have to echo Heather's uh, claims. Like I'm, I guess a little bit of a, of like a fidelity snob, but not too much. Like I'll watch whatever I can get my hands on, but I have to say that the restoration of this film is quite possibly the most beautiful looking film I've ever seen in my entire life. And I think I said it already on the stalker podcast, but I think that on the silver globe is the finest achievement in filmmaking uh, period. I think that it's the culmination of everything working at like at the best level it could possibly be working and everything down to costumes, sets, camera movement, lighting, lenses, music, dialogue, everything um, is just unbelievable. And it's, you know, it's as close to a religious experience, like it's not to be completely pretentious, but it's as close to like a religious experience I think I've ever had, like in from watching films, like it's just, there's nothing really like seeing the restoration. Yes. And I, I do think it's important. I don't, and I apologize if, if, um, if one of you guys have noted this already, but the, the narration portions that are set in like modern time, meaning like 1980s Poland, the, it's Zulowski himself narrating it. And it's basically, which we don't find out until the very end of the film, which is so amazing. That reveal. Oh, <laughs> it's just, oh it, oh, it hits you, you know, it hits so hard. It's it's so brilliant, boy. When the shirt, like going back to the when they pop up, it's like what, you know, it's just another moment in this film where you're like, oh, what, you know, <laughs> like this is this is amazing because they they have like a uh, telepathic abilities. They're terrifying looking, but 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 sort of but striking. Like so, like you can't like once you see them, you're always going to see them in your head. Like you'll never really forget them. Just like the creature design is so cool. And it's and it's so different from what you typically think of when you hear the phrase creature design with science fiction. You know, there's no rubber masks. There's no uh, animatronics. I mean, it's a very uh, theatrical in a way type design, but it but it works so beautifully. And they're just so they're just so bizarre and creepy. Well, you said the word that I kept thinking of throughout so much of the film, which was theatrical. Um, I would say that the acting is at a pitch that feels very theatrical, especially when we get into the Merrick story, especially in that section where he is having a quote-unquote conversation with one of the Shern. Oh my God, he is just over the top. But at the same time, I'm just like, this is... It's a stylized acting choice that he is making, and I know that that wasn't actually his voice coming out of him. It was somebody else doing the VO because he wasn't available to do ADR after 10 years of uh, when they finally put this together. But the choice to be so theatrical, I can't give it any fault. Normally, I would say, like, oh, it's theater acting. You know, you're projecting to the back row. It's so stilted. You know, it's like uh, freaking Will Smith in uh, Six Degrees of Separation, which is just one of the clunkiest performances I've ever seen. But no, this is very much a choice that this actor is making and it fits in with the rest of the story because so much of on the silver globe to me anyway is at this fever pitch and it just really works especially when he's having this conversation again i guess it's kind of like dune where we have telepathy but they're not necessarily speaking to one another it's more that the inner thoughts that we hear with dune but the way that they uh, that he is having this conversation with the Zern, 
I mean, he's never had this happen to him before, and he's finally like breaking down some of the barriers between him and this other race. So it makes a lot of sense that he would kind of react the way that he is reacting, and especially because it seems like they react more to the emotional state than to just a, an unemotional state. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things on Zulowski and why I, he's quite possibly my favorite filmmaker is that Zulowski does not use like human logic. He he creates his own universe and his own logic, and therefore the acting has to be like it. Almost feels like it has to be like this. If 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 like Zulowski has a very specific form of theatrical acting, which is pretty much present in almost all of his films, and it it, it works for him, and it would work so little for other people. I mean, I think. Uh, there's some Fassbender films where it's similar, but um, nothing quite on this level. And I think a lot of that has to do with maybe some influence from Artaud. Uh, I know there's a there's a quote. I think Daniel actually asked Daniel asks him in one of the interviews Daniel did with him if he had, if he was influenced by Artaud, and he says something along the lines of "Me and Artaud drink from the same stream," which is I think a funny way of saying that yes, a lot of things in Artaud's writing are being translated. But like that's the I think that maybe. On the Silver Globe is as close as you can get to a cinema of cruelty. You know, I say that fully addressing that no matter how many times I read Artaud, it it means almost nothing more to me because it's very complex. But uh, that's what I've always taken this film as, sort of like a, a representation of that, but through Zulowski's own claims. That's true. When I look at this through the lens of, say, Possession, another Zulowski film that we covered a couple of years ago, that acting is of a very particular style, and it is not anywhere near naturalistic. And I appreciate it for that, because it is of its own accord. And again, going back to Lynch, I can see in, uh, where you know the acting in Twin Peaks, the acting in Dune, is a very different acting than this naturalistic. You know, you're you're not going to see this type of acting in. To Heather's point, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, it would be a much different film if Zulowski or Lynch had directed uh, <laughs> one of the Guardians of the Galaxy films. You know, with this film, too, it's, it's everything is so – the scope of it is so big and the story is so – just like very interwoven and it's a large tapestry kind of experience. So to have like all of this bigness and then like a quiet, small performance, that'd be a pulled thread, you know, it wouldn't work. Um, you know, it, it, it's just um, the acting and I, and I agree completely with Joe, I think with all of Julowski's work, you know, every, every element, I mean, he's a master and with masters, every element, from the actors to the music to, you know, how everything's lensed and just so on is purposeful. You know, it's, it's part of the master stroke. Yeah. I mean, a quiet performance in this film wouldn't, it wouldn't work. What is the story of Merrick? I mean, Merrick's story is the most complicated one to me because it feels like, it feels like we've gone into almost like a castle intrigue type story where it's, there's Merrick and he, I'm kind of trying to figure out what his raison d'etre is because there are people who are plotting against him. There are a lot of women in the film and I can never kind of keep them straight. There's a lot of women's names being dropped here and there, but I can never really associate this is this woman, this is this woman. Sometimes I'm even wondering if there are multiple women or if it's just the same woman. And then it's interesting that there are, he's got allies. He has at least 
two allies who are actors. And of course, again, we're talking about theatricality. I guess that plays right into it the way that these actors are. Um, yeah, I was, I was having a real hard time trying to figure out exactly what's going on with this because it does feel like there's a lot of plotting happening behind the scenes and kind of keeping him off base. There's always like some kind of intrigue going on, which I, I always sort of took to be like, you know, as a commentary about government and structure, but also, you know, the waters get very interesting too. Speaking, speaking of waters, speaking of our, our Artoian waters, am I making that up? I'm totally making that word up. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, Americans up being kind of like the Christ type figure in the story, which, you know, of course, who, who else, uh, suffered through political intrigue, but Christ himself. That's kind of how I took some of that parallel. Putting it like in such a like a simple description, like what I'm doing here is not doing it justice, but we'll give hopefully the listener kind of who hasn't seen this film a flavor for, you know, what is going on. I think the actors are so fascinating too, because um just sort of like what what they represent, like the like they, they try to interpret life through art and act it out and this idea of this like this artifice but like this this accepted artifice and this this idea of life as acting um is just really fascinating to me um i don't quite grasp it all even after i i've seen this film a handful of times now uh there's always things i don't quite grasp on it still but um i guess back to your point of the women i think for me i thought there was only like for mark only like two principal women one who we see only on earth and then the one on on uh the planet who is the actor who he falls in love with who he then who then also copulates with a shirt sort of stabs him in the back not i guess that's maybe spoilers <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah which uh i know daniel says later on in in his interview how the again the parallels with uh uh possession you know the woman has sex with the monster it's like oh yeah yeah and then and is betraying the man betraying sam neill in that film yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so we we do definitely have that as a a precursor to uh, a precursor that comes out uh you know eight years later <laughs> As it were, to go back to the Christ metaphor, I definitely was thinking of Christ with lepers during that scene that he has with the, what are we calling these, morks? They're kind of the half-breeds between humans and Shuren, and the way that he goes in, and he's kind of almost trying to rally the morks to help fight, and they uh, all pile onto him, and it just kind of reminded me of that scene from my point of reference, Jesus Christ Superstar, where he's just like, there's too many of you, and just trying to get out of there with all the lepers that are trying to get him to heal. That's what I was reminded of. And then it's funny because that same pileup that we have there is kind of echoed in there's an orgy scene later on where all these people are, are, are copulating with one another. And I was just like, that to me is such a striking visual of all those bodies intertwined. Just looked so amazing to me just to see uh, all of those limbs everywhere. And then the woman who kind of crawls out of that right into the camera's face. I was just like, oh, this is this looks really, really cool. That for me, was one of the most like unforgettable scenes in the whole film especially because it's not necessarily it, i didn't take it to be erotic at all it's it almost sort of like bosh like there's something sort of frightening about it and you know just lots of screaming it, it's like taking something that's like a, a an act that can be you know just so exhilarating and beautiful and just sort of but totally dialing it down to its most base <laughs> 
based kind of um, nature with a nightmarish filter added to it. It's like it's like a moving painting. And back to the whole idea of like theatricality, it's like every element of every element in the film where it's like these mass mass amounts of bodies that are sort of intertwined with each other are sort of handled in that like very theatrical sense. Like even the the fight scenes are so striking in the film because they're they feel fake, like very fake at times and very plotting. But it fits in with the it just totally fits in with how the film reacts. Like it's like of course they would feel this way. Um, they're sort of ballet like. Well, yeah, and then to go back to the uh, the costumes, the outfits for the Vor and then for the Morks, I mean, these are not, to, to your point, Heather, they're not creature effects necessarily. They're very costumey, and to see the way that they, you know, they kind of have their arms out to, to represent these wings and everything, it just, you know, you... you have to suspend your disbelief with a lot of this stuff. If you come in and you're just like, oh, look at those, they look so fake. It's like, yeah, that's kind of the point of this whole thing. But at the same time, to me, they're very terrifying. They kind of reminded me of the Vor from um, Beastmaster, those wing things that would come uh, come up and devour you that way. And at one point, one of them grabs him like that. I was just like, oh man, he's going to you know leave a big pile of, of bones, like Rip Torn or something. That just will be spread all over the place. They reminded me of the Vor, and they reminded me of Skeksis a little bit. So, but obviously not as talkative as Skeksis. Yeah, no, I could I could see that. And you know, the thing about all of the theatricality of the film. I mean, we've touched upon the acting part, but Mike, I love that you pointed out the the makeup with the morgues is that, I mean, cause every, it just blends in so well with everything else in the film. Like it doesn't take you out, you know, where you're like, Oh, that looks silly. I mean, you know, not at all far from it. One film that kind of reminded me a little bit, like with the, at least with the whole morgue section was, you know, you have that plot in the second half of El Topo going back to Hordorowski, where basically you have like these, these cave, these cave people who are the product of incest and that the townspeople do not and will not help them come to the surface because they're basically deemed as, you know, unworthy, basically deemed as undesirables. Again, two very different filmmakers. But then again, I don't think there's anyone on the planet like Zulowski or Hordorowski. Yeah, and that whole idea of bringing the liberation, I mean, that kind of feels like Merrick. Merrick, to me, it feels like he wants to be a freedom fighter. He wants to engage in battle, but nobody else wants him to. Nobody wants him to fulfill his mission. And then it's interesting that towards the end of his life, we get this, uh, these rumors are starting to spread. And he talks about, you know, people or people say to him, you know, people are saying that you're not actually from Earth. People say that you're not, uh, you know, that the old man was a myth, that this is happening, that this is happening, just like spreading all this fake news, hashtag fake news, and that he can't necessarily combat that because he's got the figure I take to be kind of a high priest, this guy who paints himself gold. I'm trying to figure out where he is in relation to the first part of the movie. It almost seems like he is... It feels like he's the next natural progression from that kind of Thomas Jr. or Thomas the Third type character where he's the leader of that tribe at the, uh, I don't want to say the very beginning, but in the Jersey part of the film, he feels like that next progression. Like we have gone away from tribalism and he's, I don't know if he's necessarily the Pope, but he's definitely, it feels like a high man uh, in this organized religion. And and again, back to your point, uh, Daniel, it feels like he is that 
bad guy from um, Hard to Be a God, where he is controlling all the things behind the scenes. He is that that religious figurehead who is trying to uh, uh, make his moves and uh, secure all of his power. And Merrick is just this threat to that power. And well, and one of the interesting things I think is that Merrick starts to um, starts to buy into the myth. Like he gets there, and he's just sort of he's just sort of I. Yeah, I think supposed to kind of help them, but then they they're like, "You're, you know, you are the prophetic uh, savior." And at a certain point, he is like, "You're right, I am the prophetic savior." And it's at that point that these factions that uh, deem to undermine him and take control start to develop as well. Um, and they obviously grow very powerful when he leaves to lead the expedition to the across the ocean to the Sherns, um, which I think is actually really fascinating. I'd love to talk about the the city of the Sherns or however you want to describe it. That just takes us into this whole other world, and it is much more of our modern world. I mean, I am so reminded of things like Full Metal Jacket or you know, 1984 when I'm watching this, where it's this dilapidated city structure and I'm just amazed, like, this is where the Sherns live? Because at first we think that the Sherns are very primitive, and then we kind of realize that they might be even more advanced than we are. Uh, what led me to a reading that I had that actually I checked with Daniel on, and he didn't necessarily buy into it. Uh, and it's probably not true, but I thought it was – I thought it, at one point I found it quite interesting. But I was – but it was to me like they uh, they live in what's clearly – like dilapidated human created structures, uh, which wouldn't quite make sense for the Sherns. Perhaps like, is it, Oh, that this was the original earth and that the earth that we know in the film, actually people escape from, from the Sherns planet to earth created a, created a world and then went back. And then, um, by that point, the Sherns had destroyed all humanity and we're left with just a Sherrin society. But Daniel didn't quite buy that. And I, I trust his opinion over my own when it comes to Zawoski. But that's the thing. Like, when you do see that, it, it, it does bring up so many possibilities. I mean, that, that to me, that's a cool reading. This, the Sherrins have built this city, but why is it dilapidated? What, what has happened, you know, over, over time with the Shuren civilization to where, you know, obviously a once new structure, uh, has seen some better days. Um, also, why are they trying to mate? You know, why are they so keen on mating with the humans? Like, you know, and, and having like this interspecies, you know, spawn that are being kind of basically shoved in a cave. There's a lot of interesting questions. I don't know. I, I, I definitely hope the translation of the book comes out uh, sooner than later because it would. Um, I imagine there's a lot more detail about that in there. Not only that, but I think this is one of those movies that the more times you watch it, the more you're going to get out of it. Because I went back and I started to rewatch the opening, and I got so much more out of it the second time than I had the first time because now I kind of know what the structure is. And I think that, unfortunately, I know there's been some scholarship on this movie, but not to the point where I could necessarily find a whole lot of great stuff written about it. I would love to see kind of a, a breakdown of the characters and their relationships and who these people are. I mean, my question about is there one woman or two women? I mean, I would think that would definitely help and just kind of track where these names are, who these people are, because we do definitely get a different woman that's introduced in what some people consider the third part of the film, which is actually parallel with the second part of the film. And the two eventually collide. And that is the... Uh, 
I hate calling the guy Jack because I know that that's not how his name is is going to be in the Polish or even a better translation. I think it's Jacek. J A C E. I'm not going to try to spell it, but I'm fairly positive it was Jacek. Um, but I could be wrong. It's been a few months since I saw the new translation. That sounds a little more accurate than Jack. <laughs> Yeah, well, to call these guys Mark, George, and Jack, I'm just like, you know, this they almost sound like the Pep Boys, you know? So his story, where he is kind of following the Mark story, and then when Mark's uh, tra- um, transmission gets cut off, he kind of goes into his own thing. We're kind of following both Marek and Jacek at the same time. And he's got, he's got girl problems. Definitely. This woman who's trying to run him down with his car has really cool, like Batman car, which is tooling around the desert. It's so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, okay, there's this kind of like movie that's going along parallel. And then eventually he kind of, uh, intersects with the Marek story. Even trying to find his uh, description of that character and what his purpose is and where he's at in the film was very difficult. I don't even think he gets a mention in the Wikipedia article about this, much less some of the other articles that I've read. I'm just like, if it doesn't feel like anything is in this film as a mistake. So I know that uh, Jack has a purpose of this, in this film, so I'm just still trying to kind of get the lay of the land as far as what his purpose is, what this relationship with this woman is, and um, how, what his relation with Marek is. Yasek is, I believe, Marek's best friend, and the woman is the is the woman that uh, Marek has escaped Earth for, because of love from. So she's having an affair with his best friend and has and broken Marek's heart, which is what is the reason behind why Mark is willing to take the expedition away from earth beyond that. I think like Yasek has just such an amazing look. I mean, don't you guys agree? Like he's got like such a great physical presence on screen. He's not like a necessarily handsome guy, but he's got like this like extreme, like rugged, like beauty about him. I don't know. I'm very taken by him. (laughs) No, no. I, I thought he was tremendously beautiful to look at. He almost like his, the angles of his face to me, it's like you could almost see him being like the hero in like a Mobius comic or something, you know, like he's, there's something very just classical, not not classical in the pretty sense, but there's a, I don't know, to me, he was sort of like classic, very classic looking. Well, and he can really rock that ass. (laughs) And that sweet ride. Yeah, it just looks so natural on him, and I think that helps with that kind of Mobius look, because he's really kind of tapered down to his feet wearing that uh, one-piece astronaut costume. And, you know, and about the car, you know, this is two years before Mad Max, and how many years before before Road Warrior, so it's like, and it's got, like, real Mad Max vibes during that car scene, I think. This just triggered a memory. Uh, when you have that car scene, I don't know if you remember this, Joe, but like the, I think the combination of the car and the music, some people in the audience did kind of laugh. Yeah, a lot of people laughed because their music is like, um, is like real funny, like rock and roll. And it's the first like, mo- it's like the first like totally modern music in the film, I believe, if I'm remembering. Right? Yeah. So it's like, it changes like tonalities like so, so, so much. But I honestly think that like, Jalowski probably wouldn't mind people laughing at that point because I feel like it is kind of comic relief in as much as he can. Like, it's not laughing. Like, it doesn't totally feel like laughing at the film to me. 
No, I was very taken by that music, as a matter of fact, to the point where I was just like, oh my god, is this on the score? I have to find this right now. Finders <laughs> Keepers has released a few of uh, the, the Zulowski scores. I don't think they've released this one, but I would love if they did. Kind of reminds me of almost like a, a really good prog rock, almost like mm-hmm. a magma oh, or something. Oh god, that's a perfect, that's a perfect combination. Uh, and of course, magma were originally going to be part of the soundtrack for Hordorowski's Dune. See, so we can. <laughs> it all goes back to Dune. <laughs> None of the laughter felt derisive or anything. I think it was almost sort of just. It is like such a tonal shift that you're just kind of like, oh wow. <laughs> it just, yeah. And if- if I'm remembering right, that's like this. That's where the film cr- is cross cutting the most, and I think it goes from. I just. I want to say it goes from a terribly bleak and serious moment in Mark fighting or or something to just that scene. So it's like this. Like it's just this huge juxtaposition between like very light and very serious. Which and then the very light even turns very serious quite quick. <laughs> Very, very serious. I mean, you were talking about Cannibal Holocaust earlier, and of course I was thinking of that as I saw, and uh, Heather, I think you mentioned Bosch as well, the shots of these people who are impaled on these uh, huge spikes along the beach, and the one guy who's got his entrails coming it down out of him. And but yet he's still talking, and you can see the pools of blood at the bottom of these spikes. Oh my God! What an amazing image! And even before they go ahead and they crucify Merrick, which is again one of the most striking images of the film. Even before that, you have these poles along the beach, just going for pretty much as far as you can see, with these bodies up on them, hoisted up, and it's just wow! It just really speaks to that. The brutality that, if we are talking, if this film is a uh, metaphor for organized religion, yeah, you're looking uh, very much at uh, what we would expect to see from some of the Spanish Inquisition. This is 1977. Like, I can't think of anything from 1977, really, that's that explicit. I mean, I'm probably forgetting some right now, but that's, that's like, very, like, that's, like, very, like, ahead of its time, I think. I mean, a few years, like, it's coming, but it's... I feel like in 77, like, that's particularly gruesome. Well, and especially the way that it's presented. And, you know, Mike, I I love you mentioning images of, like, the Spanish Inquisition. And, yeah, going back to Bosch, because it's definitely, it's done, like, with a painter's eye as opposed to, I mean, previous, most previous examples of gore, you know, before this were, like, you know, H.G. Lewis. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I love Herschel Gordon Lewis, but this is, that's a complete, that's not just not within the same galaxy of, <laughs> of this. It's like a different, it's a different universe altogether. Um, so, you know, this was done, you know, to be not to look like some sort of like EC Comics, Grand Grignol kind of affair, but just like definitely more just like, here's the reality of what this would look like. And, you know, yeah, it's brutal, but societies are brutal. Executions are brutal, but yet it's done so beautifully too, you know, like Bosch, you know, you know, just like all of these artists who can present you something absolutely disturbing, but yet you, you can't look away cause there's, you know, there's a detail of beauty, you know, lodged in there. It doesn't necessarily end with a crucifixion. That's one of the final things that we see. So, to me, I mean, you can't have a crucifixion in your film and not immediately start to recast the whole thing as a Christ metaphor, as a Christ story, and just how does this play into this? I mean, 
crucifixions are probably one of the most loaded images that we have in all of our you know western society so to have that as the culmination of this film it's like okay yeah that definitely kind of puts this in a new light and starts to make us think about this film a little bit differently than we might have before whereas if we had really kind of thought about religious overtones this just <laughs> hits the nail on the head as oh. it were <laughs> but that isn't even the end of the film because we get more of this going back to poland circa 1970 1987 and the voiceover continues and the voiceover oh man i love the voiceover at this point at one point the voiceover describes what that last shot is going to be and to even use the exact terminology out of the script you know medium shot this way this is how it's going to be shot and telling us how the film should have ended and then the way that it did end and we finally get this revelation of why we aren't necessarily seeing the original film like we we got a little bit of that at the beginning where the voiceover talks about how one-fifth of the film was lost and this voiceover is going to fill in those gaps but when we get the end where he's kind of laying it at the feet of the cultural industry and all these things, and then to your point, uh, Joe, the way that he, uh, the camera turns and we see that it is Zulaski in this reflection. And I love that it's not a perfect reflection. That is this very distorted reflection of him on, uh, in a window, uh, on one of these streets of Poland. Just, amazing that that reveal of this is the author of this film after you've been sitting here for over two and a half hours experiencing this thing that you've never experienced before just really you know it's like wow hats off to you sir it just really makes me appreciate this guy so much and that's the moment where if i had been in a theater i would have stood up and applauded this is probably the maybe one of the greatest happy accidents in the history of cinema. I can't help but think, and as for as much as I'm sure it weighed on Zulowski's shoulders for a decade plus, and the film never quite got the release it was supposed to get, and even to today, it never received the credit that it should. So there's a lot of negatives to what the Polish film industry did to this film. But the single greatest thing is I think this film is as amazing as it is because they never finished it. And I think all of the insert shots are made all the better by that last scene. And the film is elevated to another level just by that last scene beyond what it was. So it's to me, there's, there's something about this film needing to have all of these things happen to be truly as great as it is. And I'm, I've talked to some people who disagree with me, but I think that this is the best version of the film it's better than he could ever even imagined when he was writing it. I would kill to have seen what it would have been like completed per Shulowski's original script and vision. Uh, but I do think it's an absolute testament to his, his mastery that he was able to find a way to tie everything together in a way that didn't, that didn't make of the film a lesser effort. It didn't make it feel like it was that you're only getting three-fourths of a film like you see the film and you don't you feel like you're getting an entire work and to pull that off as seamlessly as he does is no mean feat it's just thank god thank god that you know the film was preserved 
by key people in Poland, you know, what we do see of the film and, uh, and that Zulowski got the chance to put it all together and, and shoot his narration. Cause it's uh this film is one of those. It's, it's a gift film. Let's go ahead and take a break. And we're going to play an interview with film historian, Daniel bird. And we'll be back with that after these brief messages. After movie diner promo, take one. John Wayne here from the Brannigan podcast. Has anyone seen the full Vernon? No, try again. Sweaty Vernon here from the No. Come on. Hey, how's it going? I'm Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll tune in to After Movie Diner. It's my favorite podcast. Better, but also at the same time, completely useless. Um, try and mention the movie reviews, the interviews with independent film directors, things like that. Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast here. Hoping you'll turn in for a... It's tune in. Christ. <laughs> Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll turn in... Thing turning. How hard is it just to prank the damn show? Do it right, or I'm gonna come down there and nail your face to the fridge. Listen up, folks. Matt Ringler here from Schlock Treatment. I want to tell you about a great podcast, The After Movie Diner. There's plenty of pie, and everything's delicious, especially the host, the sweaty Vernon. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, he didn't even mention that the podcast is available every Monday at amdpodcast.blogspot.com and iTunes. Idiot. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 1. The Quatermass Method. Simply recast a new actor in the original role. Hope that no one notices that a familiar character now looks completely different. This was also famously used in the James Bond films. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com. Alright, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. Alright, Reverend Scott, take uh-huh. us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, God. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. What was the first Zulowski film that you saw? Possession, uh, of course. <laughs> uh, well, I read about Possession first. It was, well, without wishing to go over stuff we talked about before, but it was the the, the premise and also the poster which intrigued me. I remember watching it with a bunch of friends, and pretty much all of them absolutely hated it on account of the performances and the dialogue and the perceived lack of irony. And But I loved it. <laughs> I wanted more. So, uh, yeah, I, I started um, 
what was then a difficult business of tracking down other films in, I wouldn't say a pre-internet age, but in an age when you couldn't stream or download videos easily. Uh, so this is like the late 90s, I guess. And so that meant importing videos from Polish video stores and sh- from Chicago and things like that. And uh, and then, of course, I was in the UK, so it meant a standards conversion from NTSC to so, so you'd usually end up with a sort of a really ratty video recording, which did look like it was some sort of alien signal from outer space, which is entirely fitting for the Silver Globe. In the case of that film, when I actually, I, I first saw it, they had a, a, a video library at the Polish Culture Institute, which was part of the embassy in London, and they had a video recording of the film, but only the last hour and a half. So I actually missed the first the the first uh, the Yerji the the first diary part of the film, so yeah, my first encounter of that film was yeah the second half only yeah it, it took some time before I saw the whole thing. When you're watching these movies, are you already fluent in Polish? Oh God, no! I mean, I, I wouldn't, I would never put myself on the pedestal saying fluent now. No, it's it's a uh, at, at the time. Uh, yeah, these were Polish videos with uh, no subtitles, um, which I think was a. In a strange way, I think that was a key thing because I was, t- well, just to bring it back to Silver Globe, I was talking the other day with Andrzej Yerushevich, the cinematographer, and we were talking about the, the strange situation regarding the reception of the film, particularly the restoration. And it seems to be playing really well outside of Poland. And in Poland, it's either not really playing well at all. And, and, and my, my gut feeling was that I think in the Polish public, there's still a lot of baggage associated with Jawewski, and that's kind of um, getting in the way of people perceiving the film for what it is. And Andrzej Jaroszewicz, he said he had a different idea. He said he'd watched the film, he'd screened the film for a film school in Warsaw, and the international students got more out of it than the Polish ones. And he thought it was to do with the language of the film, because the trilogy upon which it's based is written in a kind of Art Nouveau, young steel, kind of uh, decadent, symbolist, very florid uh, language, which he thought was off-putting to a Polish ear, uh, to it like a contemporary Polish audience. It sounded very mannered and dated. And I think actually, yeah, so actually watching the film as I first did, you're really not looking for a plot. You're just responding to spectacle. So I think that was actually a good thing, uh, and especially with regards to films like The Devil, the fact that, yeah, the plot and all this is important, but fundamentally what makes these films so special is spectacle, and there's nothing more spectacular in Chwowski's, uh filmography than on the Silver Globe. What is the story behind the film? What, because when did he originally shoot this? It's stories within stories. It's, 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 it's um, quite a complicated situation so in 1974 he makes uh which is uh his most successful film uh in france uh you know it was a big deal uh, at the time and and i think he got released i'm not sure but i think it released very early in 1975 at the time he was married to a polish actress margarita Braunek, who uh, features in the third part of the night of the devil uh, she was a big star in Polish cinema, and you know it's important to remember that when they got together, she was a much much bigger star than he was. He wasn't a star at all when, you know, he, he was a, a name, but she was a star. They broke up, and of course, uh, yeah, it, it had a 
a, a catastrophic effect as it would on anyone. And uh, so he went back to Poland. I mean, he he told me he'd actually been offered a, a deal to direct a, a Patricia Highsmith film, amongst other things, in in, in France or Germany. But he he, he didn't do this deal and uh, went back to Poland. And um, he uh, had ended up meeting uh, a writer and filmmaker called Tadeusz Konwicki, a uh, very good writer and, you know, an interesting filmmaker. And he suggested, why not film the Lunar Trilogy by your great uncle, you know, Jerzy And so it's this trilogy of books, you know, written over a hundred years ago, before really the science fiction genre became what it is today. That is to say, this is a guy who studied philosophy. He studied in Switzerland. He wrote his thesis in German on the problems of causality in Spinoza. He translated Nietzsche into Polish. He was an intellectual at this period of Polish cultural life. We call it uh, Moda Polska, so young Poland. And I guess you could, it's something like the symbolist decadent kind of period, this turn of the century. He was uh, a friend of Malinowski, the anthropologist. Uh, He knew uh, Stanisław Ignacy Witkiewicz, uh, or Witkacy, this very, this precursor to the theatre of the absurd. This was a crazy guy who used to do portrait paintings on drugs. And the more drugs he took, the more expensive the portrait painting, and he used to list. So uh, it was a very interesting cultural life in the Tatra Mountains, uh, in Poland when this novel was written. And it was just in the years before the First World War. And uh, Yezhi died uh, in the trenches. So th- there is this kind of cloud hanging over the novel, this sort of like premonition of, of the apocalypse. This was written as a trilogy of novels, and it ha- and I think its main cultural legacy, I mean, it, scandalously it's not published in English, but it is the novel or trilogy of novels which Stanisław Lem credited as inspiring him to write science fiction. So... If this trilogy of novels inspired Lem, and Lem in turn inspired the likes of the brothers Strugatsky in, in Russia, then we've got this whole tradition of um, uh, Soviet Eastern European science fiction, which can be traced to a large degree to this trilogy of Polish books. Uh, Fritz Lang made a film, uh, Women on the Moon. His, his wife at the time, Thea von Harbour, was borrowed considerably from from you know particularly the first volume at least it's a major tag so that's really the kind of the the source novel um but in the case of Shuevsky, he his the first thing he did in Poland he wrote a script which would become possession it's a script called Potwór monster so he just kind of bashed this out so yeah the first version of possession uh but then he turned to this and I think it's interesting to consider on the Silver Globe as a sort of B-side to possession, because if you look at the structure of the film, the structure of the film is in three parts. Yeji, the, the astronaut who kind of, uh, the, the center of the first story with the, the colonists on the moon. Marek, the, the, the scientist who comes to the moon to find out what happened to the, the colonists. And the third part, Yatsek, which is the, the part supposedly on Earth, which involves lots of drugs and strangeness. There is a love triangle, as there is in possession, at the heart of the film, and that is that Marek leaves Earth to escape emotional turmoil, which in turn mirrors Zhuavsky's situation in terms of, you know, leaving France, returning home, throwing himself into 
uh, a massive film production to uh, take his mind off emotional turmoil. So there are so many levels to this film. Yes, it's a science fiction film, but it's not a normal science fiction film. It's science fiction as a vehicle for philosophical exploration, as it was more like thought experiments. And it's also autobiographical. So, yes, it's a very unusual film. What happens after he writes the script? Does he get funding immediately or does he have to now he's he's back in Poland working? How is his relationship with uh, the Polish film market at this time? At the, at the time, the, the Minister of Culture was a guy called Josef Tekmar. And um, Tekmar is a, a very interesting character. In Poland during the 1970s, this, this Gierek, uh, the, this, the, the first secretary of the Communist Party at the time, that the economy is starting to flatline. Uh, it's going gray and people are getting pissed off. Uh, and this is what's brilliantly captured in Kishlovsky's early documentaries, that was Poland of the 1970s. And I think Tekmar realized this is when I think it, it really pays to, 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 to look at the history of Poland, particularly during the communist period, in a less black and white terms. I mean, he knew there was going to be problems. So there was allowing a degree of um, self-criticism within the Polish uh, film industry. So it was thanks to Tegmar that you have all of these films by Wajda, Kieślowski, Zanussi, Holland, this, this so-called cinema of moral concern or the, the, the cinema of, of, of moral anxiety or, you know, however you want to translate it. So you have this degree of self-criticism. Kowitzki's reason, reckoning is the fact that, look, you can interpret the film in many ways, but you can also interpret it as essentially anti-religious. And if you consider that in the 1970s in Poland, you're effectively having a battle between the Catholic Church and the Communist Party, a film which basically exposes political and power underpinnings of the church is broadly in line with um, maybe not communist thinking, but it's certainly not a film against the establishment. So, and also the fact that this is a, this is a type of, this is a, a time when people are looking to making popular films. You know, this, this is this is a film which goes into production at almost exactly, probably a little bit later, but almost exactly the same time as Star Wars. Uh, so you know, they're both space operas, but very different types of space operas. Uh, so yeah, there was no no sense that this was in any way going to be a, a contentious or problematic film. Of course, Shawarski had a reputation. His first film had created problems. The second film, The Devil, had been banned. So, you know, he, he had a reputation, um, but nobody invests in a film which they have no intention of releasing. This is absurd. So they start making the film and they made it in Poland. So the sequences on the beach are on the Baltic coast. Uh, it's in the salt mines in Velichka, all those caves. Uh, there's whole sequences in the Gobi Desert, which mainly in the first part of the story. They had planned to shoot part of the film in the, uh, the Caucasus Mountains in Georgia. They actually built sections of the rocket ship, but they never got a chance to, to film it because the production was shut down. It's often referred to as the most expensive film in Polish history. Szywarski used to get furious whenever this was mentioned. And the reason was, he said, well, look, it's very simple. This was a film made of nothing. The fact that 
it was shot in Mongolia, it wasn't an extravagance. It was the fact that Mongolia owed Poland God knows how much money for all the sardines from the Baltic coast. So they said, well, look, rather than pay you back with the sardines, why not support a film crew shooting in Mongolia for a few weeks? So it was kind of, you know, payment in kind, uh, which is, you know, how a lot of the Soviet Union worked. I mean, it's a similar story with like films like The Color of Pomegranates. I mean, these these are seemingly lush films. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of um, payment in kind and exchange between kind of Soviets and Eastern Bloc countries at the time. And if you look really hard, there isn't anything massively expensive about the film. A lot of the costumes are... are uh, made out of rubbish, essentially. I mean, in fact, once the scenes in Krakow and the Kazimierz, the, the, the old Jewish district of the film, when they go into the Schoen city and you see all those kind of lizard creatures in the buildings, the, 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 the streets are just covered with litter. And what, what they did, they just got some, some like, you know, some garbage trucks and they just junked all the litter on the streets. So it's literally a film made out of rubbish. And, you know, and I think you could say, and, and Zhuwabski's written about this, and it's something, you know, I, I totally agree with, that the, the strength of Polish arts during the communist era was poverty. Grotowski's theatre emerged out, it's a poor theatre. You know, you don't have lights, you don't have music, you don't have all of these things you associate now with kind of modern theatre. Fine, stuff that, let's use candles, let's use rags, uh, or posters, you know, we don't have complicated lithographic presses you know you know let, let's use a paintbrush you know let's let's go back to basic printing so it wasn't the extravagance which it was often referred to it, it's spectacular yes but it, it is a, a spectacle which is dragged out of uh, a poverty of means so it was a difficult shoot they shot on and off over two years and you know using some remarkable technicians Andrzej Jaroszewicz had been the camera operator on the devil and he'd also been a camera operator on Love Batons and Deme. Zhuwabski pro- promoted him to cinematographer. The great thing about Yaroshevich is that uh, he started life as a stuntman. So, uh, yeah, he's never happier when the camera's in his hands uh, running about. So he's completely opposite of, say, many of his colleagues in Poland who are, you know, making painterly references with, you know, Composed shots, you know, Yaroshevich is there running around with a wide lens, just kind of capturing the action like, you know, it's a, he's shooting a war documentary or something. You know, and Yaroshevich has always said to his students, and he, is that, yeah, you have to be fit to do this, just as you do with the stuntman. The stuntman, you have to keep in shape, you have to do weights, you have to train. Well, these are exactly the skills you need as a camera operator to get all those smooth tracking shots without steady cam. You need stamina and you need uh, you know, balance and you need agility. So, again, this is like steady cam when you don't have a steady cam. You just have a, a very good operator. The makeup effects in On the Silver Globe. Uh, I once asked you, oh, how did you get that? You know, the bit at the end when, when they nailed the guy through the palm of his hands. And I said, that looks realistic. How did you do that? And they said, it's simple. We just went to the morgue, cut off a guy's hand, took it to the set. And they said the biggest problem was finding a member of the crew who would stick the nail through it because they're all Catholic and crossing themselves. And finally, some some grip, you know, just so the shooting could carry on and they could go home beside stop this, I'll do it, crossed himself and then just hammered this nail into his hand. That's the kind of the background. That's the, the sophistication, let's say. Uh, Magdalena Tosławska, uh, she... she uh, went on to become Zhuwabski's regular costume designer. 
this was the first time she worked with him. And again, you know, the, the, the Shern creatures, these flying lizard creatures, you know, on the one hand, I guess you could say they look kind of ridiculous now. But on the other hand, I think they had, it's quite clear that she comes from a theatrical tradition. And, and if you don't mind looking uh, and you embrace the artifice, and I think it does because the film is so much about spectacle and theater, that I have no problems accepting, uh, accepting those kind of lizard creatures as kind of theatrical costumes in the same way that I don't have a problem with the, the fluffy tiger in a Sheik Karib by Porajanov. You know, that rather than pretend that you're watching something which is uh, real, you embrace the artifice, which is a gesture, is sometimes more truthful. And I think that's something which, obviously, Shuevsky made more and more explicit, like in films like Le Femme Public, when you see the, the film being shot and, and it reaches a kind of conclusion in Boris Godunov. And, and also Cosmos, the last film he made, when, you know, at the end of the film, you see the whole mechanism, the whole tracks and dollies and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is a, a very complicated film, which is rich on spectacle and, and low on budget and high on imagination. So tell me about the shutting down of the production. Often when it gets referred to, it is suggested that this is uh, the film was some sort of subversive thing. And the authorities duped when commissioning the project, finally cottoned on and sought revenge by shutting it down. And I think that the reality in the way I understand it is much more banal and political with a small p. Uh, that is to say, the person who actually shut down the project was a guy called Janusz Wilhelmi. Wilhelmi was the vice, the deputy minister of culture, so he was underneath this Josef Tegmar guy, and he was also the head of the cinematography unit. He was a very bright guy, and he'd worked his way up through television and as a literary critic, but he was very ambitious. Kevin Spacey and House of Cards ambitious, and he wanted his boss's job. And what better way to get your boss's job than to discredit your boss? So really, he had a vested interest in making the production seem like some sort of massive folly, a white elephant. You know, his superior was responsible for this. He needed the production to be a problem. Complicating that is the fact that, yes, this is a, a problem. This is the, the years leading up to the events at the Gdansk shipyard and solidarity. And Poland's economy was in trouble. There weren't things. This wasn't a rich country. And this film did seem a huge extravagance in 1977, 1976. Really, how could you justify a, a four-hour elitist science fiction spectacle when people haven't got food to eat? For me, I, I think it, it is a really, it is the culmination of these factors, the fact that the economy was falling apart. And this was an extravagance or, or could be perceived to be an extravagance in some respects by some politicians. At the same time, you have this kind of crap Machiavellian political chicanery, uh, which has, I mean, the assumption is, and I, I think it does drive me crazy. The assumption is that, that people believed in the party just because they're a member of the party in 1970s, they would believe in the communist ideology. No, by 1976 in, in Poland and uh, as it was in the Soviet Union, no one believed in anything except somebody like Zanussi who believed in God. You know, there is a joke. It's about how Stalin, uh, Khrushchev and um, Brezhnev are all in a train carriage and the train breaks down and Stalin says, execute the driver and execute the engineers. And 
uh, Khrushchev says, no, let's be open that the train has broken down and explain it to the passengers and say we're doing all we can to get it up and running again. And Brezhnev goes, why don't we just close the curtains and pretend that the train is still moving? This is that era, and this is the, the this is the thinking certainly in Poland. No one believes every. This is this is an economy falling apart. So so the idea that basically they the, the, there were people in the party who, who kind of had communist principles deep in their soul, and that that this film they'd accidentally greenlit was in some way a threat to these principles is frankly absurd. So, you know, and, and, the, and I think that the story of the, the, the kind of the making and the unmaking of On the Silver Globe is a perfect counterpoint to, um, the, the films Vida was making at the same time. Because again, Vida, you know, I, I really do, I admire Vida and he was very generous with me whenever I interviewed him. Uh, but I think there is a tendency to kind of put him on a pedestal and over, you know, exaggerate all this. The, the idea that he, he, he was somehow kind of, battling for freedom and everything else it, it, i don't wholly buy into that because if you look at the simple fact that he didn't have films banned man of marble which was made around the same time as on the silver globe is a very brave film the script had been written years ago and it only went into production at that time but it only went into production at that time because take knew that it was probably better to allow people to express their frustrations and criticisms of polish communist everyday life than to suppress them. This would be akin to a pressure cooker. You know, he was letting off steam and allowing people to let off steam. So this idea, which is very prevalent, I would say, in Poland now, that this wave of filmmakers, Holland, Zanussi, Wajda, Kishlovsky, somehow uh, laid the foundations for the collapse of communism. It's a very nice story, uh, but I have my doubts. And I think this is the fundamental difference that... Shuevsky, the, the difference between the films which Shuevsky was making, the, the Man of Iron, the, the film uh, which appeared in the same year of Possession in 1981, you know, this is a unique example of cinema being used effectively to bring about change. Uh, and it, it's unparalleled. Uh, it, and it is a unique achievement. But I think in the case of Shuevsky, Shuevsky was interested in trying to understand. He wasn't, he wasn't interested, he was interested in power, religion, and politics. He wasn't interested in a small local story in Poland. He was thinking of it in cosmic terms. What is the relationship between early man dragging himself out of the swamp, formulating a kind of shamanistic religion, and then how that evolved into what is essentially organized religion, how politics plays a part in organized religion, political dogma, persecution, heresy, and, uh, and then a period which is effectively the end of the 19th century. Uh, Darwin, Nietzsche, the death of God, this kind of post-religious phase, which is when the book was written. So whatever you think of the film, uh, whether you think it's successful or a failure, and no, to be perfectly honest, I think it's somewhere between those two poles. But I can't help admire the ambition and the scope of this film. It really is quite remarkable, especially to be made in a country in 19, in the second half of the 1970s, uh, a country under communist rule with, uh, with the Catholic Church nevertheless playing a significant part in everyday life. It's, it's a really fascinating snapshot of that period and, and a perfect example of what the science fiction genre can be. Uh, I, I really do think in that respect it's a, it's a, a unique achievement. 
How does the Catholic Church survive in Poland when I know that that was diametrically opposed to what communism stood for? Well, there's a famous saying that Stalin said that applying the principles of communism to Poland was like putting a saddle on a cow. I mean, and it has to be remembered that look, communism in Poland, you know, the, in, in Russia, the revolution was 1917. It didn't really happen in Poland until after the war, you know, after the victory and the, the Second World War. And you have a, a, a period uh, which is essentially a Stalinist takeover. And all the people in the Central Committee at that time were all Polish Jews who'd survived the war in Moscow. And they were all uh, leftists and they'd been posted back to Poland. And this unfortunately has resulted in this association with Jews and communism and this kind of rather unpleasant strain of anti-Semitism, which persists to this very day in this association with Stalinism or, or, or at least the left with, with Jews and it's... So, so basically, I won't say that the Catholic Church survived. It's, it's more of a case of the way around. How did communism survive? So, yeah, the Catholic Church was a much more prominent force uh, and still is today. It's even bigger now. I mean, you have to remember that The Devil, the film which Zhuwowski made in Poland prior to On the Silver Globe, even though the film was really about a particular moment in Polish politics, March 1968, when the Minister of Interior, the head of secret police, Mieczysław Morczar, got his people to essentially incite student riots and then clamp them down in a bid to destabilize Władysław Gomułka. And that, in, that, in that whole event was all mixed up with kind of Jewish problems. And, and the outcome was a kind of a purge of the Communist Party of Jews. So, yeah, but that's a whole different story. But the fact that, uh, and then on top of that, and you have films like Szymanka, uh, by Zhuwowski, which he made after the collapse of communism, where, you know, the target of the film is the attitudes towards sex and morality of the Catholic Church. Remember that even in the communist times, the Cath the official reason the devil was banned was nothing to do with reference to these March 68 riots. Officially, it was banned because the Ca Communist Party thought the film was offensive to Catholics. So, so you know, it, it is a complicated story, and, and, and I would say it's the other way around. The Catholic Church thrives in Poland. It's even stronger today. Um, it's communism which struggled to survive, uh, if, we, if we look at history as a, uh, on a broad canvas. And the, fil the film, really, when you look at it, it, it is, it's not really anti-religious. It, it's anti-dogma. Zhuwowski always used to explain the film. He said that the film is in three parts. And, and the script is in three parts, incidentally. Uh, the, the names of the three astronauts, Yezhi, Marek, and Jacek. But actually, when you look at the films, the, the first part is the equivalent of like the Old Testament. The second part, the Marek, is the, the New Testament. And the third part, the kind of the, the decadent part, is the, is, the, is the present. Of course, it's not really the present. It's the, the present depicted in the novel. But it's it's a present refracted through the present of 1976. He developed three different styles towards shooting the film. So the first one he shot with this heavy green filter, which he then corrected chemically, and uh, shot with this video diary approach. And then the the second part has got this kind of super 8.5 wide angle lens uh, to give this immersive point of view shots with a kind of subtle cyan filter. And then the third part is a kind of pastiche of Hollywood kitsch. 
So all the the kind of the extravagances of say you know Selznick's Cleopatra, the the track and zooms, the, the the crane shots, and all of these kind of the Hollywood excess, which Shawovsky equated with the kind of the the decadent uh, symbolist period which the novel was written. And also you could say that bears parallels with the decadence of the 1970s Poland, when all the faith and belief in communist ideals is turned to shit. <laughs> People are just biding the time before everything collapses, uh, which is very decadent. In the, in, in the midst of all that, particularly in the first part, you see what is essentially like a, a kind of the relationship between the actor and the community. Acting is fundamentally religious. You know, the, the, the shaman is having one foot in the physical world and one foot in the mental world, and that their sociological function is a kind of healer. This is not treated by Jarowski as some sort of primitive thing, something which we associate with countries on the lower rungs of the evolutionary ladder, uh, as would communism, incidentally, because it's, you know, the, the, those ideas are actually on a kind of a, uh, evolutionary historical timeline. No, he, he's looking at this as something which is fundamental to human existence. You know, performance, spectacle, this is a fundamental of humanity. So to say the film is anti-religious, I think, is way too narrow. It's anti-dogma, um, I would say, but it, it's certainly not anti-religious. What happens to Zhilowski after they close down the production of On the Silver Globe? There was a guy, I think, who was fundamental to Zhilowski's career from the 60s right and through to the 90s. He was a, a French producer called Christian Ferry. He did a lot of jobs. He, he worked for Howard Hawks, Billy Wilder. Uh, he, his mother was a continuity supervisor on Topaz, the Hitchcock film. Yeah, there are two characters in Topaz, uh, which are called uh, Picard, and they use that name uh, because that's Christian Ferry's real name. Uh, he, he worked for John Gilliman and all of these people. He was the producer of the King Kong, the Dino De Laurentiis version. A really kind of a, a really interesting troubleshooter within the French film industry. He was the head of the French outlet of Paramount, Marianne Film, in the 70s. And uh, But during the 1960s, John Gilliman wanted to make a film of the fall of Berlin. This is straight after the Blue Max, which... Uh, Christian produced and they went to Eastern Europe looking for countries which could basically double for not just Berlin but also a Russian army so they went to Eastern Europe and Christian Ferry had worked with um, Anatole Litvak and Litvak had made a film A Night of the Generals with Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole in Poland in the 60s and Litvak said to Ferry whatever you do if you're going to Poland you should meet this assistant director I had. He speaks perfect French. His name's Andrzej Zawowski. So Ferry calls Zawowski, and Zawowski explains why there's no way a Polish army is going to pretend to be Russian soldiers in a film about the fall of Berlin. But a friendship is established. Zawowski at this point is directing TV movies. He gives scripts to Christian Ferry. And Ferry invites Zhuwowski and his wife at the time, Barbara Baranowska, who did the poster for Possession, to Paris. And uh, he gets him various jobs, editing. He gets Zhuwowski a, a small acting role in a Louis Mal film, who he is friends with. But he doesn't have his, his directing career doesn't take off. So Zhuwowski goes back to Poland to make his debut, the third part of the night. 
But every time there is a problem or every time he needs anything in France, Christian is there to get the option on the book to sort out the problems. And that was true after the Silver Globe collapsed. At the time Christian was in New York, uh, he was working as Charlie Bluthorn's kind of right-hand man, an advisor in all film matters for Gulf and Western. And uh, what Christian did, he basically provided Jawowski with an invitation, an official kind of Gulf and Western invitation to come out of Poland. And so that they didn't have passports at the time. So he paid for the passport to the Polish authorities, paid them what they need to release Jawowski. And Jawowski came to New York. So he was in New York uh, with Christian Ferry, Charlie Bluthorn, and all those people which we associate with that kind of the golden age of Paramount or, you know, the, or the just after golden age, the sort of the second half of the seventies, going to the Dominican Republic and things like that. And that's when the first, that's when he returned to this script, which was this pot for this monster script, which he started writing immediately after the breakup of his relationship, which of course turned into possession. So, you know, it, and, and it's interesting that when we screened the restoration of On the Silver Globe in New York, I invited Frederick Totten, who you spoke to and co-wrote Possession, and he said, everything in Possession is in the Silver Globe. You know, the, the guy who's been left by his wife, uh, the, the woman fucking a monster, everything's there. <laughs> so yeah, and that's the, the strange path from uh, communist Poland to uh, the New York in the late 1970s. Tell me about the eventual release of the film. In about 1986, 1987, uh, Szywowski, at this time he's in France, remember, he went, he made possession in West Germany and French co-production with some of the Paramount money from Marianne Film, the French outlet. Then after that, he did La Femme Publique, uh, which was a big hit in France, and La Brac for Alan Saad. Uh, he was trying to make a big Joan of Arc film, uh, at the time. And although he wrote the scripts and it's a massive script, it was actually one of those things like Despot when it's a, a TV series doubling as a feature. Um, it takes up most of my shelf, I have to say. It's, it's just unbelievably enormous and, and, and so over the top. I mean, maybe today with all this HBO and, you know, all that Amazon and that you could get away with like a, a sprawling, seven-hour film about Joan of Arc and Gilles de Ray with, with, you know, all sorts of disembowelments and and excessive sex. But, you know, you couldn't do that in France in the mid-1980s. And also, Joan of Arc is the symbol of the French right. So that wasn't going to work either. And, uh, oh, yeah, it was also a vehicle for Sophie Marceau. So, yeah, it was... Um, so that didn't happen, that film. And, and, and when that kind of imploded, the first offer Jawowski got was the polls asking him could he finish on the silver globe uh of course 10 years had passed since he started work on that and uh it wasn't going to work <laughs> you know people didn't look the same they were fat bald uh drunk dead um uh, people had babies and stuff like that so it, it just wasn't going to um, match the shots he hit upon the idea of basically shooting contemporary poland and shooting scenes which in some way corresponded to the film so there are shots in the streets of Warsaw. There are shots of uh, around the Polish coast where they shot the beach scenes. The shots in the churches in, in Krakow, and you have this voiceover which provides like a summary of the action which is missing. 
ironically, I mean, I actually, uh, some people don't like this this footage and uh, they find it very jarring and it takes you out of the action. Personally, I really like it and I think it gives it another layer of the film that's kind of Brechtian effect and it, and it does anchor this fantastical tale into Polish everyday reality. And I think one of my favorite shots in the film, probably my favorite shot, is not the original footage. It's that the bridge between the first part of the film and the second part. And it's like a long piece of narration and this camera's static and it's just watching people going down an elevator, uh, an, an escalator. And you have this kind of procession of faces going through the camera frame. And it's, you know, it's candid camera, so it's not staged. And there's a, you know, a, there's an earnestness. Um, it's just like portrait photography. But it says something about Poland at that time. Now, I've come to know those locations, the, the central railway station, you know, very well. And, and it is something very strange and alien to see these locations before capitalism. So there's no kind of advertising. You know, that station about it's changed now. They've done it up. But when I first went to Poland in the late no, about 97, the central station, which you see very early in the film with the camera running through onto the passageways between platforms, it was just full of pawn shops and kebab shops. That's all. I mean, it was literally unrecognizable. It was just like full of pawn and kebabs. And it was sort of like, that's, that's, that's the difference between communism and capitalism. You know, communism is sad gray people in empty, endless corridors. And capitalism is people pretending they're happy in, 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 in corridors full of Hungarian porn and the stink of rotten kebab. You know, it was, so that's, that's all like, I, as I say, that's a subjective thing, but that's, that's all I can think about when I see those, those early shots with the camera going through the train platforms at the beginning of the film. And, uh, and of course it needed, the actors needed to be dubbed because a lot of the film was kind of post-synced and Andrzej Severin, who plays Marek, wasn't available. He was in France. So another actor dubbed his voice. And Andrzej Korzynski provided the score for the film. And, uh, and just as the film has different visual styles, the soundtrack has different sonic approaches. Uh, the first part has got this kind of strange electronic backward ambient sound. The final part is a kind of, just as the film is kind of a kitsch pastiche of Hollywood excess, you have this kind of pseudo operatic score. Which, of course, it's like any film score these days of the kind of the Lord of the Rings variety. You know, this kind of warbling sub Wagnerian grandeur. And uh, so uh, the film was kind of completed and presented in uh, uncertain regard the sidebar, the worth a look sidebar at the Cannes Festival out of competition. And um, there was a problem with the sound during the projection. It didn't make that much of an impact, uh, and, and I think there was the general frustrated feeling that it was just 10 years too late. Uh, and I think there was a, a large degree of frustration, particularly in the case of somebody like Andrzej Yerushevich, you know, who really this was his first major film as a director of photography. And, you know, it should have been the film that would have thrust him into the forefront of world cinematographers, you know, people like Ijak or Sobaczynski. But, of course, no one saw the film, so it didn't exist. It's interesting, the timing of the film. So if it came out in 88, was this the Cannes Festival when The Last Temptation of Christ came out? I'm not sure. But it's interesting when you look at those two crucifixion scenes at the end. So, you know, it, there was that feeling that the film at the time was 10 years too late. I mean, there, there's another problem as well in the way that the, the approach to colour was 
to shoot with filters and then correct them during post-production. But they were shooting on this Orvo, this kind of East German cheap film stock. And the resulting films was was just kind of a, a very dark and heavy print. I mean, also, I mean, remember that when, when they banned the film, they just dumped the camera negatives in a corridor in, in a studio in Rotswab. So, you know, anybody could have taken those cans. It's a miracle they survived. The irony for me was that when, when, when it came to actually formally scanning those films for the restoration, the negative was in better condition than many of the negatives actually in the film archive. So I don't know what message that sends out, but yeah, if you want to look after your film and pole and just leave it casually in a corridor and don't don't try and look after it, they'll get damaged. And that sadly says a lot about the infrastructure of um, national state institutions, Poland. It's the strange thing about the film is that the trilogy had been translated into German and the film had been broadcast on German TV. So there was a kind of cult following of, on the Silver Globe in Germany uh, in the 90s. Also, I think... People like the Strugatsky brothers were always very popular in Germany. So I think that German audiences kind of placed the film in that kind of Tarkovsky science fiction sphere. This was not Star Wars. This was close to, to Stalker or Solaris. They made a new print of the film. There was a season um, called the Nova Falle, the, 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 the Polish new wave that never was one of those. I, I guess the idea was Poland never had a formal new wave like Czechoslovakia, but there are films which kind of engage with new wave ideas. And that was a touring program of 35mm prints about 10 years ago. And I think it played at Anthology in New York, and I think a lot of people got to see that print. The subtitles are a mess, and also that, you know, the image is still very dark. But when finally we got around to actually restoring... I mean, the, the other thing which needs to be discussed is the fact that, yeah, of course, a major showcase of Polish cinema was this Martin Scorsese Presents season. And, of course, all the Zhuawski films and Borowczyk's Story of Sin uh, was, was absent, as was many of Skolomowski's films. I think they later included one or two of them. And, I, and I'm pretty sure none of Piotr Shulkin's films were included. So the question which is implied is that Martin Scorsese didn't include this, which is not true at all. If you read the small print for that season, it basically says that the Film Foundation and Scorsese made the choice from a selection of newly restored copies. So in effect, that choice of the Polish film classics was pre-selected. Now, I'm not going to speculate on the reasons why these films were not included. They're quite boring and petty. But the fact is that on the Silver Globe, The Devil, many of Skolomowski's films were not included uh, in this, this, uh, this program. The fact that the program was presented with the name of Scorsese and toured as such effectively consol consolidated a canon, a kind of a, a formal approval, um, which I think was a great pity because Polish cinema isn't just this, this transition from the Polish school of the 50s to this proto-New Wave films of the 60s and the cinema moral concern of the 70s. There are these kind of disturbing elements, these films which don't fit in. And and two films which really don't fit in are On the Silver Globe and Borobczyk's Story of Sin. So I was really happy the fact that when the possibility, and a lot of it's got to do with the Lincoln Center, because the Polish Film Institute, after the success of the Borobczyk season, which I programmed with Florence Almazini at the Lincoln Center, they asked, okay, what, what else could we do? I suggested restore Zhuawski's films. They thought I was joking. Why on earth would you restore these these films? 
who could possibly be interested in them? But of course, Florence Armazzini, along with Hadrian Balov, had programmed this dual touring program in about five, six years ago. So, and, and, and Florence and both Hadrian were, were both kind of really disappointed that Zawadzki didn't come across. And one of the factors why Zawadzki didn't come across is the condition of his Polish films. It was agreed that funds would be released to restore both The Devil and On the Silver Globe. So Silver Globe was restored in the summer of 2015. Yeah, On the Silver Globe was restored from around about November through to December and January, which unfortunately coincided with Schwabski learning he had terminal cancer. And uh, my memories of the restoration of the Silver Globe really are in parallel with Schwabski last month. But I'm, you know, I'm very happy he did get to see the film literally days before he passed. I think there's something quite poetic about the fact that yeah he died but literally within six hours i was on the plane with andrzej yurashevich and koshinsky with dcps to take to the lincoln center and of course those screenings were so successful that silver globe came back during the summer to play an extended run and has been traveling the world at various festivals i wouldn't be surprised but i it's probably probably the most successful polish film of the last year you know which, which I think was totally horrifying for the Polish filmmaking establishment. And, 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 and incidentally, the success of the Silver Globe is not mentioned. No one really admits to it. Yeah, I think it's an embarrassment that, um, this film, uh, for all it signifies, because yeah, Chowowski was persona non grata. He was, was not just an enfant terrible. You know, he, he was somebody against the system, against the current system. He was against the, the Polish Film Institute and he was against the, 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 the kind of the, the Catholic nationalist right, which had come into power, which is now trying to take over the Polish Film Institute effectively. So he was against everyone. I think for most Poles in their twenties and thirties, he was a character in uh, the kind of the gossip press, the sort of demonic, lecherous old man who was embroiled in a scandal, uh, in which, uh, uh, an actress was suing him for, for libel. The whole sad situation with, with Chowowski is the fact that in, in Poland, for a whole generation of people, Chowowski was the guy who was involved in this libel case with this actress. Yet when you go to New York and you ask, well, who is this actress? And, and then, then you have to say, well, you remember True Detective? Do you remember the second season? You remember there were like one or maybe two episodes with like two scenes with a prostitute? That's her. So the point is, is that that's the total disparity, the way that, in, you know, out of Poland, people are looking at the films, people are looking at the spectacle, people are looking at the cinema, and they say on the self-globe what it is, a remarkable film. In Poland, the perception of Zhuwowski is tied up with his personality, uh, the controversies which he ended up getting involved in, and uh, uh, the, the, the things he said in interviews, some of which were provocative, some of which were just downright offensive. So I think it's going to be some time before people can separate Zhuwowski, the persona, from Zhuwowski, the filmmaker. I think it will happen. I think it's already happening. I think there's a whole generation of, of filmmakers in the 30s who are actually looking at Zhuwowski, particularly this fantastic element of his filmmaking. You know, films like The Law by Smoczynska. Uh, I know Marcin Vrona, who did uh, Demon. Uh, I knew Marcin quite well, and you know, and he he... He held Chowowski in extremely high regard. The first time I met him, he was talking about the impact of that scene of Chopin in the Blue Note coughing up blood. 
So it's a very strange situation to see this kind of renaissance of Zhivarsky happening not in Poland, not in France, but actually in the U.S. Uh, there is a resurgence, I would say, in Poland about 10 years ago. There were two journalists, Piotr Marecki and Piotr Kwiatkowski, who did a long, like, Zhivarsky on Zhivarsky interview book, which I think was excellent, and it did a lot to change the perception of Zhivarsky in Poland. But there's still a long way to go. When you screen these films in Warsaw, they don't get that much audience at the moment, which is shocking when you think about it, but it's true. But I do think it'll change. Has there ever been a proper Blu-ray release of On the Silver Globe? No. And you'll have to ask the the the, the Polish state studio, or former state studio, because the, uh, the, uh, I think that it, it, you have a situation in Poland when this is a produced during the communist period, so it effectively belongs to the state. But in the post-communist period, they transformed a lot of the the state film units, the state film studios, into private companies. And you have this kind of horrible chimera when they embody the worst aspects of communism and the worst aspects of capitalism. So do these studios own the films or do they manage them on behalf of the the, 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 the Polish state? Uh, is their duty to make money on the Polish taxpayers' assets? Or is it to uh, disseminate Polish culture? The fact is, is that numerous distributors in the UK, the US, France and Germany have all made offers in keeping with um, uh, the market rate. And those have all been turned down. Uh, so I have no idea what they're going to do with it. And I have no idea it will ever come out. Uh, that's a question you will have to ask the Polish Film Institute and the studio which manages the rights. Uh, the CAD film studio because it's not one I can give an answer to. I think it's a great shame because basically the enthusiasm for the film, it, it, it's, it's, I would say it's peaking and, and I think it'd be a great pity to, uh, to release the film after, uh, the interest is gone. Are you at liberty to talk about what you're working on these days? Uh, I, I'm working on a few things, but, um, they haven't been announced. So none of it's Polish. I'm, I'm really thrilled to say because. Uh, yeah, it, it's been a particularly exhausting few years. It, it, it's a breath of fresh air to be working on uh, uh, on projects which have nothing to do with this lovely country. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. Sorry, sorry if uh, it's been going on a bit, but uh, it's a long subject, as you know, and I very much look forward to hearing what both uh, Joe and Heather have to say. We are back, and we were talking about On the Silver Globe. So kind of to follow up with what we were talking about as far as this, as he says, one-fifth of a missing film. I mean, there are so many ways that he could have put those pieces back. It's so interesting the way that he chose to do it as far as shooting modern-day Poland and then what he ended up shooting. I would almost like to see a cut of this where it is just those sections together, maybe maybe even without the voiceover narration, just to see what those pieces have in common, because they are so interspersed 
in the film, a lot of times you're like, okay, well, I remember there was a subway station. I remember there were people going down an escalator. I remember there was a cemetery and almost trying to see if those things speak to one another because – as I said earlier, I don't think that they were just random things like Julowski just picked up a camera one day and said, hey, let's go out and shoot some stuff. I just don't necessarily see him being as glib as that. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate what he did with that. Now, there are there there's movies that we've enjoyed where there are missing bits, whether they are then kind of put back in the film. I mean, just last week I went to see the quote unquote director's cut. I don't know if it's complete or if there are more things, but the director's cut of once upon a time in America and the, there were missing bits that were put back into the film. And in that case, you could absolutely 100% tell that they were different. They had a different look to them. They were rescued and they didn't necessarily look as good as the rest of the film. And I almost appreciated that they weren't as seamless as they could have been, that they were kind of sending up a signal and saying, Hey, I wasn't in here originally. Keep an eye on me and see if I make the film better, make it worse, how I actually add or detract from the narrative and, you know, being a person of, of relatively fair intelligence, I was able to then kind of recast things in my mind to say, okay, would this have made a difference? Does this help? How does this make the rest of the movie play out? How would this have played without that section in here before? So we can restore things that way where we're kind of, a you know, obviously they would probably rather it not send up a signal flare to say this is something different. Or we can do what Shulowski did. We could have uh, you know, a diorama. We could have an animation. We could have so many things that kind of tie these things together. So I find it very interesting the way that he ended up putting this these sections in just because he could have taken so many different routes. To me, it felt like commentaries on the capitalism, on, on the onset of capitalism coming for Poland. Like there seemed to be a, a focus on city centers and places of of capital, like shopping and things like that. That's kind of what I got out of it. But I could be one hundred percent wrong. I don't. I don't pretend to be um, an expert on uh, Polish kind of culture, especially you know late eighties, early nineties um, Poland. No, Mike, I love that you brought that up because it is. I mean, I think anybody who's a film lover, th- there are films that. You know, we love and we even get used to some copies of or some prints of. And then later on, you know, thanks to DVDs and Blu-rays, we're like, oh, there were things cut out. We get to see it and you can kind of weigh it and see, does it work? I didn't even think, honestly, about the the ramifications of his sections being in modern times. But that's, Joe, I like your point to that. That's that's definitely a way to read it. Um, I thought it was actually kind of... To me, I, at the time, I just sort of took it as like a slice of life because like here he is, you know, now in the 80s, piecing this film back together and editing it. And he's got to, you know, bridge what's been lost together. We're along for the ride with with the director himself in, in a way. Um, I mean, which you are with all films, but with having it being him narrating it and then seeing his reflection and everything, it feels it definitely feels like, you know, he is absolutely and assuredly your captain of this journey. There's one scene, so you might just sit there and think, like, okay, these are random, this is him, you know, doing whatever. There's one scene where, for sure, you can tell that he's kind of speaking to the actual film, the the narrative film itself, where uh, Jack 
goes into a theater in the narration. He's, uh, they say he goes into this theater and he sees this woman and she's singing and he knows that it's about him and yada, yada. And during that part, Zulowski is showing us a theater is showing us, us being on stage. So it's just like, okay, this is, this is the closest we get to a recreation or an out and out recreation of what was in the, the lost footage as we get in the rest of the, uh, and we get in the entire film. But then that makes me also rethink what that other footage is, you know, uh, to show a graveyard. Okay. There's definitely something there to show. I mean, the, the shot of those faces coming down that escalator is just gorgeous. Um, just the, the, it is such a, a, a beautiful way, the way that he frames it. I mean, he is right up close on these faces. He is not uh, giving us even a medium shot. It is all close-ups of these faces, one after another after another. It's just like, okay, yeah, this is there's definitely something happening here. And that's what I feel like with this whole film is there's something happening here. I can't necessarily put my finger on it. But I appreciate what I'm seeing. This is a ride. And now, Heather, before we started to talk, uh, to, to record tonight, we talked a little bit about the new Twin Peaks that's happening. And that's the thing that I keep saying to people is people are like, oh, you like it? You hate it? You da, da, da. You know, do you understand what's going on? And just like, this is something to experience. You know, I don't know if I can necessarily figure it all out. But I think that's what I like about Lynch. That's what I like about Shulovsky. That's what I like about Hodorowski. That's what I like about a lot of other filmmakers where it is. I am just experiencing this and I don't necessarily have to make narrative sense out of it. Does my mind want to connect that stuff? Yeah, it's going to try its best to put these connections together just because I am trained to watch films and to make narrative sense out of things. Every once in a while, those connections are made. I won't say that this is an out-and-out art film, that there are no connections. This is very much a narrative, but do I necessarily understand the narrative 100%? No. Can I still enjoy the narrative? Yeah, I really had a great time watching this, but I can't say that I can sit down and explain everything that's happening to you from from you know Jump Street. I can't tell you... Uh, uh, what, what everything means in this. I can't tell you where everybody belongs in terms of the narrative structure, but I enjoy it nevertheless. If I was going to write like an in-depth piece about it, I would, I would want to have access to a good copy and watch it at least three or four more times before I would even feel confident enough to really feel like I could go into more of the minutia of the plot and characters because it's it's a dense work and it's so much to take in when you first see it. And but I love that. And I think to me like the beauty of, of cinema in general is that cinema when it works is a journey. And you know, for anybody who's like, oh well, I don't know, I don't understand that, or why would you want to watch that if it's you know if it's incomprehensible? Well, I mean, would you read a book knowing the ending? Before you even go to page one, I mean, you know, where's the fun in that? Where's the mystery in that? Like, you know, I mean, and yeah, sometimes there are films we all love that are just, you know, that are popcorn and yeah, aren't going to tax the brain too much. And those are great, too. And those can be their own kind of art, for sure. But the beauty about, you know, filmmakers like Zulowski is that and with this film is you're being given something that is so rich and is completely pure as far as just like emotional scope, mental scope, visual scope, everything. And it, it is a lot to chew on, but you know, anything that's truly worth in, in my 
in my opinion, you know, digesting in life and exploring in life is going to be complicated. It's going to make you feel uh, happy, titillated, um, confused, scared, etc. It's going to, you know, it should make you feel a, a multitude of emotions. And, you know, and, and definitely, you know, I got a lot of that with On the Silver Globe with the final emotion being just complete awe. I don't want to be too pedantic. I just I wanted to address I, the the one thing is that um there was a few mentions of uh like the footage being lost, but actually Jalowski never shot a fifth of the film, so that that footage, yeah, that footage will never show up because it was never actually shot. But ah. then back to back to the point that uh you know picking backing, I just didn't want like people to hold out <laughs> hold out. They think might be some footage out there. It's like, unfortunately, this is what we have. I mean, fortunately, this is what we have because we have it. I agree with both of the sort of sentiments that you can definitely enjoy something you don't totally understand. And like, not to go back to Arto again, but I think there's like, and this is why I think I connect with Arto. This is just that idea that um, he's looking for a way of communicating that it isn't like one-to-one. It isn't like saying something and having someone understand that language and then get a message from it. It's creating a message that is delivered only through sort of emotion and, um, and sort of, uh, and pure theatrical performance. And therefore there's other forms of, I think, understanding that aren't necessarily logical, putting every piece in its place. And I think that's what I get out of Jalowski. It's like an emotional, it's like an emotional understanding when I'm at the end of his film. I feel, I feel that I, I am emotionally where he wanted me to be. Um, not to get, you know, too into him pushing me somewhere, but like, I just feel that they always affect me in a, in a very emotional way. And it doesn't matter if I don't understand every part, it did its job the way that like, in my opinion, art should be, which is, it made me feel something. It didn't like, it makes me think, but it also makes me feel. I think one of the advantages of not necessarily being able to follow a narrative 100% the first time you watch something is to be able to make some of those ties, those mental ties. You know, I always talk about Makaveyev and the visual rhymes that he has. And that's one way to understand some of his work is to look at, you know, in uh, Love Affair, the case of missing switchboard operator, to look at the way that we have these multiple narratives happening, the way that we intercut uh, documentary footage, and we can see, you know, an image or a uh, framing that happens in one part, and that might trigger something that we've seen in another part. And that's one of the things that I, you know, that, that, being an avid film watcher, being, I think, just a human being, we're trying to always see those similarities. And that might work on more of a subconscious level than just being told, you know, Jack is going to go to the store. Okay, great. Big deal. BFD. What are we going to get out of that? Now, if we start to see a lot more of the story, if we're not even paying attention to Jack going to the store and seeing what's going on in the background, what's happening over here, how this stuff is framed, what what you know, audio cues we're getting out of this stuff, I, you, we can pick up a little bit more. It's almost good to kind of walk in. Obviously, we always want to walk into a film not knowing what's going to happen. We're going to experience it in a whole different way than if we read about it too much beforehand, if we know too much going in. And I mean, here we are in 2017, the the era of spoilers. It's like, other than me hearing that there's similarities between this and Dune, which as we've spoken, we've kind of come up with a couple here and there. Other than that, I knew nothing about this film watching it the first time, and I'm really glad for that. I didn't want to know. I didn't want to read the Wikipedia description before I jumped into this because I want to experience it fresh for the first time because I think I got 
I can't say I got more. Well, yeah, I can say I got more out of it watching it blind than had I known what was supposed to be happening with it because I'm figuring it out and the onus is all on me. I want to see it every single time it plays anywhere near me, but it's also a film that I just try to get at least one person who hasn't seen it to go to see and hope they don't hate me after, but I just think it's so enriching. Even if you don't like the film, I think everyone I've talked to, and that's from people who haven't loved the film to people who liked it a lot, all were like, I'm really glad that I saw that. Well, and you know, the thing that, uh, that I think is great about this film, but also with a lot of, um, you know, sort of touching upon, you know, the whole art film uh, aspect, Mike, that you brought up is that it takes like films that might seem a bit, you know, strange or epic and, you know, whatever to kind of touch upon like basic human condition aspects, but in ways that are, to me, at least from my opinion, a lot smarter than, say, Terms of Endearment or, you know, I mean, no offense. I know there are people that love that film, <laughs> but like, but you know what I mean? Like basic, you know, where it's just like your basic drama of like, oh, someone dies, someone gets divorced. And I mean, and there are films that are like that, that are good too, don't get me wrong. But I, I think I'm drawn to films, you know, like on the Silver Globe where there, there's something about the experience of life and death that are in there that is, I don't know, it's just handled to me with, with so much depth and intelligence, but in a way that makes you work for it. Um, and I respect that. To me, that's always a sign of respect. All right, we're going to take another break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Arribato. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Heather and Joe. Heather, what is the haps with you, ma'am? I am currently in the process of finishing uh, my contributions to the Bizarro Film Encyclopedia Volume 1, which is going to be uh, hopefully one of the new definitive tomes on uh, cult and art house and fringe films with uh, my excellent writing partner, John Skip, uh, who's also uh, a noted writer and filmmaker and musician in his own right. And uh, so keep your eyes peeled on that and you can check that out on uh, or check up any news on that on Mondo. Heather.com. Uh, right now, I'm keeping it quiet, but I'm uh, we're in the process of relaunching uh, the podcast that I mentioned last time. We're, we're sort of going to regroup and, and uh, pre-record a bunch of episodes, but uh, the group, uh, the podcast I do with James McCormick, Small Screen Cinema, which is on all TV movies, um, any any films that premiered on TV, uh, we're, we're looking to cover um, so that you can find us at smallscreencinema.podbean.com. Uh, we should have new episodes unrolling in the next few weeks and uh we have a backlog of i think like eight eight or nine episodes uh that you can catch up on before we 
start new episodes. Well, I'll be sure to post about that and post the uh, link over to Heather's site over at projection-booth.com. You can also find links there to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and over to our Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over this world and the world that looks kind of exactly like this world but isn't necessarily this world, but that world will also be conquered too.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.